Okay, so several weeks ago, we started a series called Soul Food. We've been working through that uh, as a church and then in small groups as well. We've kind of been uh, talking about those um, topics during the week and that, that sort of thing. Today, we're talking about having a settled soul, and a lot of things went on this week that were unsettling, uh, including a hurricane and those sorts of things that happened uh, around here, near here. And so, um, as we start, why don't we say a prayer for the folks? Uh, several folks, uh, I understand, lost their lives yesterday in North Carolina f- with uh, the flooding and, and with the hurricane. And so, let's just um, join our hearts together as we pray for uh, recovery and, and for the, the loss of life. And there's a lot of work to be done in our state and in nearby states. And so, let's do that now, Lord. Thank you for. Um, Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be settled, even in the midst of unsettling times. And whether it is weather or politics or all that's going on around us, we, we pray a sense of peace and comfort to wash over our lives. We pray for the recovery in our state and in our neighboring states, for recovery from loss of life and from uh, destruction of property. And I ask God that you would... Uh, heal hearts and, and give strength where it's needed. We thank you for those who are working hard to restore power and all those things. And I pray, God, that you would give an uh, extra measure of, of strength and wisdom uh, as those folks work. And now for our time together, I pray that this would be a settling time for us, that we would understand how much you love us and um, how much you forgive us and uh, how patient you are with us. And may we see all that today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in the Psalms. David wrote this particular psalm, and he says, My soul rests quietly only when it looks to God. From Him comes my deliverance. He alone is my rock, my deliverance, and my high tower. Nothing will shake me. And we've seen in this series that the Bible talks a lot about God being a rock and a, and a high tower and a fortress. And, and all of this is sort of in measure to, in a way to say, he protects us. He's the one we run to when we're in trouble and that kind of thing. And I have to tell you, I've, I've, taken, I've really taken to this verse because I don't know about you, but my soul doesn't often rest quietly. And it's kind of nice for my soul to rest quietly. And I began to wonder, okay, if his soul is resting this quietly, then, then it must be because he's experiencing some peace. You know, He was the king. And the responsibility of being a king, I mean, is overwhelming because you have to protect your, you know, the people in your charge and you have to provide and you have to make sure things are settled in the, in the country. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, David must be in the midst of a season of prosperity or maybe he's just had great victory. And just the pressure of being king, I would think, would, would take you out of any measure of having a, a, a settled soul. In fact, if you've seen before and after pictures of presidents, let me show you one. Abe Lincoln, before and after. Look, look how much he aged. I mean, think about that. Now, of course, he had that Civil War thing going on, and I'm sure that... But, but that's, I think that's five years difference. It is remarkable. This one I found funny, if Trump becomes president. Uh, but uh, I don't care who you are, that's funny. All right, anyway. I almost took him out, but uh, it's just too good to not share. Okay, now, come to find out, this isn't a season of, of, uh, of settledness in David's life. In fact, there's a coup 
somebody's trying to take over his throne. The somebody is his son. And this is what he writes the very next verse. How long will you assail me? All right, two verses ago, he just said, my soul is settled. My, my soul is, is quietly resting. And now he says, how long will you assail me? Uh, would all of you throw me down? And, and then he's referring to himself uh, like, a le- uh, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. You, you all are acting like I'm going to be a pushover, basically. Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. It's just like that OJ song. Smile in your face. All the time they won't take your place. What are they? Backstabbers. That's right. Little known fact, that song was written about this verse. You didn't know that, did you? You learned something. It's good. Now, it is obvious that peace, it's obvious that um, calm are not prerequisites to having a soul that is at rest because David wasn't in a peaceful situation, yet somehow he was able to find peace. So today we're gonna, I'm going to read some verses that often get skipped over. In fact, if you're going to read the Bible all the way through or if you're going to read the New Testament all the way through, Matthew chapter 1 is really hard to get through because it is a genealogy. And I'm going to read it for you, and I want you to listen. Because nobody wants to read it for themselves. Okay, a couple of verses here. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is in the Bible, by the way. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. But there's more. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jokaniah and the brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Can I get a witness? But there's more. After the exile to Babylon, Jokaniah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Uh, Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, which is a great name to name of son if you ever have one. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. To whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Wow. Now, um, how many of you checked out at about the third, uh, was the father of? Uh, I did, and I read it. I I mean, really. Um, It's one of those things, if I'm going to read through the New Testament, this is obligatory to read, but it's certainly not something you run to when you want to read something. In fact, it is sort of like a, uh, if you have um, insomnia, you should read this, because it's really, really kind of dull. 
But what you have to understand is the audience to whom Matthew was writing. Now, it's us, obviously. But it's interesting that Matthew is first in the New Testament. It comes right after the Old Testament. It sort of works you, kind of transitions you into the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, who you belonged to was huge. Your, your lineage was, was everything. If you wanted to be a priest, you couldn't be a priest unless you were from the line of, of Aaron. It's a big, big deal. And so to a Jewish, Jewish Christians, this was really important. And so it's a nice transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Matthew included it because it was super important to his audience. A, a, a genealogy functioned much like a resume does today. So if you're writing your resume, you want to not include really bad stuff and you want to include really, really good stuff. Uh, you, 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 don't, you, want, you don't want to give the hiring agent any reason to not hire you. And I have seen some really bad resumes before. Uh, you don't want typos. You don't want you know, margins wrong. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff you don't want to do. It needs to, be, it, it needs to look like you've taken some attention. You put some attention to it. All right? Now, um, I found some really, really bad examples of resume stuff. I want to show you a couple of them. Um, we're going to talk about gift. I'll come back to this in just a second. But the, the first gift that God gives us in this genealogy is identity. We'll come back. None of my references really like me, so don't believe anything they say. That, that, uh, you don't want to put that. Um, under, have you uh, ever been convicted of a felony? He said, yes, arson. He deserved it. We'll discuss an interview. <laughs> Not good. Not good. Um, under experience, one guy put petroleum transfer specialist at British Petroleum. You want to know what he did? He pumped gas at a BP station. This guy, under experience, said an Italian cuisine logistics engineer. What does he do? He's a pizza delivery guy. You got to give him something for creativity. Uh, terminated after saying it would be a blessing to be fired. Well, <laughs> at least they're uh, spiritual. Okay, all right. Being in trouble with the law, I moved quite frequently. Well, it's perfectly explainable. Makes some sense. No, please don't misconstrue my 14 jobs as job hopping. I've never quit a job. Well, there's that. Uh, under reason for applying with us. <laughs> I love this one. My parents are rich, and I thought I could live for free uh, off them for a few more years. Turns out I was wrong. Now I need to get a job and move out. I'm lazy, though. Last one, last one. I think I have one more. My last employer insisted that all employees get to work by 8.45 every morning. I couldn't work under those conditions. I do think that probably uh, constitutes a workplace, uh, a hostile workplace environment. Okay, anyway, you want to put good stuff on your resume. In your genealogy, you want good stuff. King Herod, by the way, is in the New Testament, Matthew 2. Uh, Nobody really knows who his people were. Because he would alter his genealogy. If, if, you got kinda, if he didn't like you, he would take you out. And if he thought it would enhance his resume or his genealogy, he would include. So Jesus includes, Matthew includes in Jesus' resume, his genealogy, these outsiders. And, and that's why he gives us a sense of identity. Because in this genealogy, it is almost as if Matthew doesn't know the rules. 
a, a Jewish genealogy would follow certain unwritten rules. Now, one is you would never include women. And yet, in Jesus' genealogy, there are five women who are listed. Never, I mean, no, no Jewish genealogy included women, except Jesus's, which includes five women. It was incredibly uncommon. It's like Matthew's really bad at this. But it wasn't just that. He also included non-Jews, Moabites and Canaanites, Hittites. I mean, people who weren't even Jewish made it into Jesus' genealogy. And if you're Jewish, you really don't want to know that. You don't want to include that. But Matthew included it. And then there are moral outsiders. Because he included Rahab, who was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. This is what she did for a living. And then he includes Tamar. Well, thank goodness she wasn't a prostitute. She only dressed like a prostitute. So she could seduce her father-in-law and have children by him. If there was a Jerry Springer show, Tamar was on it. And, and then there's... Um, he doesn't just say Perez. Perez uh, was his ancestor. It was also Zerah. It, it's as if Matthew is saying, Hey, by the way, do you remember that story about Tamar? It was really weird. Because she seduced her father-in-law... How weird is that? I'm going to include it in the genealogy. I mean, that's what he does. And he, he doesn't just sort of blow by it. He kind of highlights it. Really, really odd. And then, oh, thank goodness we get to David. I mean, there was a, you know, David. It's like, oh, David. David the warrior. David the hero. Da- David the, the king. The the, the one who was a man after God's own heart. Oh, at least he included David in the genealogy. Really, really good. Except, except, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, that's a little sketch. And, and you know the story of this, right? Again, it's as if Matthew is saying, look how dysfunctional this family was. I mean, you talk about a despicable human being, or something, uh, something uh, good people don't do. Uh, David was despicable. It was horrible what he did. He, 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 when he was a young leader, uh, he had a, a nemesis, Saul, the king. The king didn't like him, so David had to be on the run. And David wasn't on the run by himself. He had some guys that would hang out with him. And these guys helped him sort of survive, and they conquered, and they were kind of mercenaries and and some of them were called mighty men. And one of the mighty men was a guy named uh, Uriah. And, and he was one of David's closest associates and friends and protected David. And one time, once David becomes king, Uriah, they kind of his, his entourage stays with him. And, and they're out at war. And David sees Uriah's bride. And, and he asks about her and and he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know, he's, he, she's the wife of your boy Uriah. You know, he, he, he's your compadre. He's your close friend. He has protected you. He's someone that has your back. And, and this should have been the end of it. Anybody with any character this would have been the end of it and and david 
has Bathsheba come into his palace. He has sexual relations with her. She becomes pregnant. And then, to top it off, he arranges for Uriah's death. There's a reason that Matthew didn't say uh, Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. He says Solomon, whose mother was the wife of Uriah. There's a reason for that. He is pointing to this messed up genealogy that Jesus has. And, And here's the great news for us. And the big idea for the day is that we can rest knowing God's grace isn't just for really good people. Because even in Jesus' genealogy, if you're the black sheep of the family, welcome to the family. Because evidently Jesus had a flock of them. They were every place. These people messed up big time. And what Matthew is saying is, listen... These type of people couldn't even enter God's presence, and yet they made it into Christ's genealogy. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. Sometimes we think, oh, I have to kind of clean up my act before I can be acceptable to God. The genealogy of Christ sort of blows that notion out of the water. It's just not true. Anybody and everybody, no matter where you are or what you've done, what you are into even in the presence, can keep you from the grace of God. Tim Keller put it wonderfully when he said, No one, not even the greatest, does not need the grace of God. And no one, not even the lowest, can fail to receive the grace of God. Everybody has access to the grace of God. We all all sit or can sit at the table of the king. I mean, you talk about equal access. We all have it. And it is really awesome that we all have it. In Galatians it says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all of you have been, who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Good news. The good news is you have identity. It's not that you have to win God's approval. See, so many of us are looking for our identity in our work or in performance or in appearance or what car we drive or how big our bank account is or how big our house is or what school we have attended or what school our kids attend or how well our kids do because we find identity in those things or what kind of athlete we are or what kind of musician we are or what kind of whatever we are. And in this, in this verse, we are told we can be children of the king. See, here's the point. Through the gospel, your identity is not in what you've accomplished, but it's what has been accomplished for you in Christ. Right now, the way you are, you are loved and accepted. and You're enough just the way you are. And every soul that you meet this week... Today, when you leave this building, when you go and have lunch someplace, every soul that you encounter, that person is enough. You don't have to do anything. In Christ, we are enough. God loves us. 
the way that we are. The first gift is identity. The second great gift that God gives us in this is hope. It's hope. i got to tell you, um, last weekend my girls were all together. All four of them were together. And Miriam and I were there. And we were in Tennessee. And, and um, we had a great time. And we weren't together long. It was like 18 hours. We weren't together long. But every second of it was glorious. And as a mom and dad, we, Miriam and I sort of stepped back. And we just watched them interact. And they laugh. And they tease. And they argue. It's beautiful. It's just fun. And as a, as a parent, when they all get back together, it is, it is as if your heart just sings. I, I couldn't have been more happy just to be in... I didn't, I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be there. Now, as a parent, what I wish every child came with is a remote control. I've prayed for this. I really would like it. Because with a remote control, can you imagine if you were a parent and your kids kind of starts to get off the tracks and you could rewind? Woo, no, 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 no. Or just hit pause until you die. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, I, then you can do what you want to do. Uh, this would be perfect. And if they did something really good, you'd rewind it and play it again and again because that would be awesome. And, and every one of us, I think, who are parents have this notion that, man, I, I really wish my kid would be a certain way, do certain things. I talk to people all the time, moms and dads and friends and siblings whose child, whose brother or sister have made decisions that are hurting them. Our hearts are breaking over this. And I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but in that genealogy, I don't, I don't suspect that Rahab's mother would have said, wow, the, my, my highest ambition for my daughter is that someday she'll be a prostitute. I suspect she didn't say that. And I suspect that Bathsheba's mother didn't say, hey, I hope one day she's known for adultery. I, I don't think so. And I I suspect that Tamar's mother didn't say, wow, I hope someday she gets on the Jerry Springer show for seducing her father-in-law, which is creepy. I'd like my daughter to be creepy. I don't think she probably said that. And yet, and yet, somehow, this, this is what is amazing about God. I mean... There are so many things that are amazing about God. This is it is so remarkable. What's fascinating in this genealogy isn't that Jesus was descended from people who did sinful things, but that Jesus was descended from these people at the point in the midst of their sin. This is remarkable. That somehow God can redeem even our sin. I I don't know if your mind is blown, but it should be blown by that. Sin doesn't separate me from God. When, When my children make mistakes, it doesn't 
push me away from them. It draws me to them. I want to help them. I want them to be better. I want them to to get right. And God is drawn to us in the midst of our sin. Maybe He loves us more, if that's possible. In the midst of our sin. And God redeemed the very acts of sin. It is amazing that He can do that. What a wonderful, what an amazing God we serve. That He is able to do these things. There's a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson, and he writes this. This shows us that God is not paralyzed by our past sin. He is able to take those who have sinned grievously and bring them into His great purposes. Those who have sinned grievously. There is always hope because God is closer than you think, and He is always at work. There's hope. So we don't give up because God doesn't give up. We keep trusting and we keep praying. We keep hoping. Because God is so passionate to redeem our sin that He sent His Son to make sure it happened. It is a wonderful gift that we can carry hope even in the midst of sin. Remarkable. I don't know what your story is. I look back on my life and I just think, oh my word, how could he redeem? That. How could he possibly redeem that? And yet, He did, and He does, and there's hope. And then this third gift, and this one is going to be tricky. I'm going to to prove it to you, I hope. is the gift of rest. And you go, well, dude, I heard you read it, and there ain't nothing about rest in there. So I'm going to have to explain it to you. I'll do some splaining, all right? Now, look, look at this. Verse 17, I don't know that I read this one, but I may have. All those, who listed, uh, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to, uh, to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, you don't have to be much of a mathematician to read. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to know, well, there's really, there was more than 14 between these. Some have speculated, well, perhaps it was there because it, it was an easy memorization. Now, understand... Um, Jewish children would memorize the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So if this was a memorization tactic, then maybe it makes sense. But, but really, there's, a, there's a, a better explanation for this. In Genesis 2, during the creation story, we see that God created for six days, and on the seventh day, what did He do? Remember? Rest. He rested. That's right. He took a break. Uh, he watched a little football. I mean, I don't know what He did, but anyway, He took a break. He took a break on, on the seventh day. Now... There becomes this um, principle that we are to take a, a, a break every seven days. That um, even the land, you remember this, in the Old Testament there was a rule that every seventh year you didn't plow. You, you, 
God would give you enough in the six years and you stored up enough so at the seventh year you could leave your ground, the, the word is fallow, you could leave it uh, to, to replenish itself. Because if you keep working it, then it, it becomes uh, void of um, nutrients and those sorts of things that make plants grow. So every seven years, you let the land rest. And, and then there was a principle in Leviticus 25, called it's called the year of jubilee. jubilee. And every seventh seven years, the seventh seven year, or the 49th or the 50th year, there, there was this celebration and everything that you owed was, it just kind of went back to zero. Uh, I, I would vote for that, by the way. I, I really, I think that's awesome. Every 49 years, all, all of your debts are, are wiped out. And if you had sold land, then the land came back to you. I mean, how cool. And, and so there was this principle called the year of Jubilee. And Isaiah talks about it. It's kind of cool. In, in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Because sometimes people would get poor in those 49 years. And he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be free. And this uh, is sort of dripping with genealogy or with, um, with jubilee language. Now, when Matthew says there were 14 generations, 14 is how many sevens, for those of you who are mathematically uh, uh, excellent? Two. Awesome. Right. Good. Okay, so there were 14 uh, from, from uh, Abraham uh, to David. That's two sevens. And then he said there were 14 from David to the exile. That's how many more sevens? Two. So that gives us four. And then from, uh, uh, from the exile to Christ, there were two more, right? That's five and six sevens. And so what he's saying, sort of covertly, kind of in code, I like this, kind of code. He's saying in code that Jesus is the beginning of Jubilee. That he is the one, the, the one we've been looking for. And Jesus, at the institution of his ministry, he went to his hometown. And look what happens. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Because if you were a rabbi and you showed up, then you had an opportunity to read. And the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll strategically and found the place where it was written. Hey, we just saw this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. By the way, you sat as a rabbi when you taught. And then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you've just heard have been fulfilled today. I am the beginning of Jubilee. In fact, Jesus is saying I'm the fulfillment of Jubilee. See, Jubilee is all about freedom, being released. Well, what freedom do we enjoy in Christ? Well, the freedom, the, the release of having to perform in order to win God's favor. We, we can be released of that. I don't earn God's favor. In Christ, I've, I have God's favor. I don't have to earn it. I'm released from performance. I have to win God's approval. I don't have to win God's approval. I'm free from that. And, and I'm I'm freed from having to win people's approval at work or at church or wherever it might be in my family. I don't have to win people's approval anymore. 
I'm free. We're free. Jubilee is about rest. And in Christ we find this rest. But we don't have to perform. We don't have to win favor with people or God. Let me end with a story. Chariots of Fire was a movie that came out when I was a kid. It was about two runners in the 1924 Olympics. One was a guy named Harold Abramson. And this is what he said about running. He said, when I run the 100-yard dash, I run because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence. To justify the meaning of my existence. Basically, he's saying, I work really, really hard so I can feel good about myself. And I have to perform well or I don't feel good about myself. And if I win, I feel good. And if I don't win, I don't feel as good. There, were, there was another guy who ran, a guy named Eric Lydell. This is what he said about running. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure, and I am trying to please this God who loves me and delights in me and has given me this. It's quite a difference in approach to life. They're both training hard, but one man is always weary even when he's resting, and one man... Is always resting even when he's working. There's great rest in being comfortable in the fact that even though I am a sinner, and even though I have past sins that are quite egregious, I have a God who loves me so much that He sent His Son, and I can rest in the fact that through Christ, I have relationship with God that I could never have on my own. Because I know Deep inside who I am. I'm comfortable in my skin. And I'm comfortable in what God has made me. See, every one of us could put ourselves in this. God made me something. So that when I do this thing, I feel His pleasure. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is that for you? What did God create you to be, to do? That when you do it, you feel his pleasure. That's a question maybe for this week. When you go home, when, when you're reading your Bible this week, or when you're in prayer, when you're driving in the car, what did God create me to be? And when do I feel his pleasure? Because, man, when you find that sweet spot in your life, there's nothing like it. I talked to a guy this week, and he said, uh, I've had two dream jobs in my life. Wow. There are people who work all their, all their lives and never have a dream job. This guy's had two. I don't like him very much. I mean, I'm jealous sometimes. It's like, good grief, that's awesome. I, he said, I've been, I've been working in my dream job for this many years, and I'm thinking, man, what did God create you to be? Look, we, we find identity in Christ. We find hope in Christ. We find rest in Christ. We find purpose in Christ. There was a fourth one. It would be purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for what you've done for us today. We thank you for Christ and the rest that we have in him and the peace and the comfort that we can have even when things seem to be falling apart. And I pray, Father, that you, 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 
would be where we find our identity and our hope. Thank you for loving us so much. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.